And good afternoon. It's 4 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to CFRC 101.9 FM. We're located here in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding of Oasis Spoken Word Programming here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today... In the first hour from a January 30th book launch event at Novel Idea, you'll hear M. Max Hammon, or Heyman, I believe it is, with his new book, The Audacity of His Enterprise, Louis Riel and the Metis Nation That Canada Never Was, 1840 to 1875. Following that from the February 4th, and the journey continues, open mic reading in that monthly series, You'll hear readings by Matt Drabenstadt, Michael Castiles, Bob McKenzie, Meg Freer, Lyle Merriam, Jordan Lane, Tia Lunn, and Sasha Hill. And in the second hour, from a February book launch and reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore again, uh, you'll hear Ray Robertson launching and discussing his new book, How to Die, a book about being alive. Uh, This first, though, the usual hourly announcement. Occasionally, some poetry, spoken word, or music played on the show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So, again, up first. Again, this was, um, all of this is quite recent. Uh, I barely have enough new material each week uh, to put things on, and that's why I have to go into the library and find some of these older recordings and do those. But things are going to start picking up here, and you'll be able to tell that I believe I do have a little bit of time at the end of the first hour. Yes, I do, uh, but not the second today to share some upcoming events and uh, maybe two or a couple of at least calls for submissions as well uh, because those are getting very close. So, again, coming up first from, uh, it was an evening, uh, January 30th, so, and that's the farthest back of anything I'm going to play today. Uh, again, it was held at Novel Idea Bookstore, and Max Heyman uh, with his new book, again, The Audacity of His Enterprise, Louis Rial and the Métis Nation That Never Was, 1840 to 1875, and the book was published by McGill Queens University Press. Here again is Max Heyman. Thank you, thank you all for coming. Um, Megwitch, I want to uh, acknowledge the fact that we are here on uh, traditional Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe territory. Um, But uh, I guess. uh, I was once I remember I was once told a story about Riel um, by a uh, by a by a, a storyteller from from BC and he, he mentioned he he uh, recalled that he met this uh, he met this missionary who was going down to a, one of the gatherings of the of uh, one of the summer gatherings of the Métis in uh, in Montana and uh, he was trying to press a Bible into the hand of this older woman saying. Uh, read this book; it will it will save you. This is the man who has died for you and is going to save you. And she was like, I don't understand. What do I need this for? 
But this this Bible, this will this is this is the martyr who has has given his life to you. Oh, you mean it's Louis Riel? <laughs> and I think Riel has this he has this larger than life story that he is um, that he's become a kind of a hero, and that's kind of what attracted me to the to the story of Riel, um, wanting to kind of figure out who he was and uh, and to write this book. So um, first of all. Thanks very much to Oscar for organizing this. It's uh, really great to have a group here. Um, and I think it's wonderful that I could come into uh, Kingston and there's a, so this is set up already. Um, thanks, for, thanks to Stephen for suggesting I should come, come knock on the door. Um, thanks to McGill Queens for putting this uh, book together. Um, they've done a wonderful job in terms of uh, the production. <coughs> The editing has been excellent. Um, from the from the from the beginning of the uh, from, from from my very um, defense right to the to the final appearing in, in my in a box in my in my mailbox, it was, it's been a wonderful experience to work with the Queens on this book. And um, so I guess um, I don't I don't really want to. Um, well, I, I do also and I also want to acknowledge my uh, my supervisors. Um, Elspeth and Elizabeth, they couldn't come down for this, but uh, Elspeth Heyman and uh, Elizabeth Elborn were the two, uh, were two guiding people who put this uh, book through the past eight years. Um, and they would have liked to come down, but it's, it's too much to do that. So, um, this book is a big, that is, is due really to, to, their, to their help. Um, and I, like I say, I don't, I don't want to talk about it too much, but. Uh, I will say that it, it was a PhD dissertation, and it still has 130 pages of footnotes in it. <laughs> um, it's hard to edit them out. It's like it's like bleeding a little bit as you try to pull it. But uh, it, um, it it I think it, it does it does read as, as as a story of a person, and I hope it's um, it's uh, it draws you in. The, the original the original. The point of the book was to tell the story of, of Riel's worlds, the many worlds of Louis Riel. And so, as you'll see from the book, it goes from Red River to Montreal, back to Red River, and back to Montreal again. And so it's that, it's that story of Riel in these various worlds that the book tries to bring out. And um, you'll find that there's a, a, a large section on Riel's education. Um, so you see a big, a big part of what I'm trying to do in this story is show that Riel was a thinker. He's an intellectual. He's a poet. Um, he is a, he's an artist. Um, and he, he saw himself as a... He, he's, one of his friends said Riel saw him as himself as a Victor Hugo. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting way to think about um, what kind of life he really wanted. And so there's this large section about his education, about his writing poetry, and... I conclude the book before the, the fall of Riel. So Riel is celebrated um, as a martyr, as someone who died for his nation. But there's also another story of Riel, I think, which we can trace if we stop his life in 75 rather than his execution. And so this is an attempt to push back against the story of the rebel, the story of the, of the, the revolutionary. And to say this is a, a founding father. This is somebody who had a vision for what Canada might have been, 
and I says I conclude the book and say we can look back from 1885 and see his the, the tragedy, or we can look forward from 1874 and say look he's achieved what he wanted to do, and so I guess the book is an invitation to try to reimagine what Canada might have looked like if we were in 1874. So that's uh, what I want to say. So I hope you enjoy it, and uh, if you have any comments or comments. Or questions about it, I'd be glad to uh, address them. But, uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>
they're ready to go out in the streets and mm. and well, basically it's to fight other Protestants. Basically, is the reason, really, reason they want to go out. But there is a the, the lines quickly get drawn. He's put them Catholic on the French side. Um, so yeah, there's uh, there's support for him. There's also people who hang him in effigy. And uh, international recognition. I only am asking this because I yep. was studying Cesare Lombroso, the Italian criminologist, and he uh -huh. put Riel in a gallery criminal faces, you oh, know, really? his okay. idea was, you know, you could tell from someone's face whether they're a criminal oh. or a whore, <laughs> and he, wow. he put Riel in there. It must be the big forehead, is yeah, that what it, it is? I think so. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, no, there's a, there's a brilliant article on this, actually, by uh, um, John, Jeff, Jeff Reed and Todd Webb about, uh, the it's called the Catholic Mahdi of the Northwest. And so they're comparing Riel to what happens in Sudan, and it goes across the British Empire, it goes in Australia, the, the Americans. And a big part of this story, actually, in, in 72, 73, Riel causes an international scandal where um, the, the Americans are writing, the American newspapers are, re are recording what Riel's movements are. And the other, one of the other, this is something I just realized after the book, um, during the Northwest, just during the, the, the Red River resistance, the Canadian government sends troops through to, to Winnipeg, but of course they have to go through Sault Ste. Marie, um, uh, the canal, which is in international waters, and the, the Americans are saying no. So what um, John A. Macdonald has to promise Hamilton Fish, who's the American um, Secretary of State, this is a mission of peace. So there is the Americans are on the <coughs> real side in this case. So yeah, there's there's definitely an international story throughout his life. Right. Are you familiar with the Bolivarian circle of Louis Riel? No, but I know there's a poet. <laughs> <laughs> the Bolivarian circle of Louis Riel? Yeah. No. In terms of um, what you were speaking about, guerrilla war, you know, uh -huh. they apparently. Um, um, like I was invited to speak at a meeting of the Bolivarian Circle of Louis Riel in Toronto really? maybe about 15, 20 years ago, is I can't remember anymore. Huh. And um, the reason that they have this circle is based on their, um, uh, what to them uh, Riel had accomplished in, in bringing together yep. uh, people and establishing a nation that was an indigenous under indigenous leadership, yeah. which they were striving to do down there, and they took an example from his, from his work. And there's another quirky little story that uh, apparently uh, Che Guevara copied the uh, guerrilla uh, styles of... Um, of the, the, the Macy hunters? Yeah. Oh, interesting. I'm guessing that. So, uh, Gabriel Simon, yeah. to be specific, and so uh, I've never found the... Um, the academic links that verify that. I know that Riel was picked up by some by a Brazilian poet, Matias Carvalho, um, and Riel himself was kind of watching what was going on in Mexico at one point, comparing how the, the struggle for independence was going on um, and the Catholic Church's struggles with the French Empire. Um, so there is definitely some links. Um, but I don't like Emperor, but the Bolivarian Circle, no. I was amazed when I yeah. did find out about it. Yeah, I, yeah th these things do travel in international ways, which, which, which is surprising for the 90s.
I look forward to reading your book. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Books are for sale. Please eat the snacks. <laughs> and ask me questions if you want to. And you just heard uh, Max Heyman uh, launching his new book with uh, published through Miguel, McGill Queens University Press, uh, and the book again called The Audacity of His Enterprise, Louis Riel, and the Métis Nation That Canada Never Was, 1840 to 1875. And that again was held at a Novel Idea Bookstore on January 30th. Tell you what, as we switch over to a different event, I'm going to play a couple of these. Here you go. I'll be right back. The Four Directions Aboriginal Student Center, located at 146 Berry Street, offers resources and services for Aboriginal students at Queen's University. Among its many services, the center offers a Three Sisters Feast Weekly on Wednesdays from 5 to 7 p.m. at the center, prepared by staff or a guest chef. The center is open daily, Monday to Friday, and hosts events throughout the year. For more information, visit queensu.ca slash fdasc. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, you're, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture, a different understanding, but a different picture different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. And here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I believe I record, I aired a few readings uh, from what we're going to move into next, I have very noisy paper, it sounds like. Maybe I should just move this mic up a little bit, and that won't be quite as bad. Uh, going to go back to uh, the open mic event uh, that I played a few readings off of. Uh, I believe, again, it was last week, and uh, it is from the February 4th, and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series held at the Elm Cafe and uh, for those of you that might not have, that aren't familiar with the open mic or have not really listened to this show in the past when I've aired these, uh, uh, we're doing them and the, doing the readings in the round now. And uh, so it's one poet, one, or one poet, one poem, and then it just keeps going around and we'll go through a sign-up sheet. We'll go through the list at least two times and occasionally we've been able to get through it three times. So... So I pair them in groups rather than uh, one, uh, just every poem. Otherwise, every 
somewhere around a minute or two minutes uh, for the most part. Uh, you're going, yeah, I would be breaking in. So put them together in groups. However, uh, this first reading was a bit longer. He asked me if it was okay, and I uh, said for sure. So uh, going back again then to uh, a few more readings uh, off the from the February 4th, and the Journey Continues open mic reading. We're still in the first round. In fact, we won't even finish the first round in the first hour today, and then I'm airing something else in the second hour. Uh, so let's just go ahead, and this one, as I mentioned, I'm kind of rambling here, uh, is, uh, again, the longer piece. And so it's just uh, it's not a grouping of people. It's just a single person. Here he is. Without further ado, I guess at this point, here he is, Matt Dravenstadt. Hello, everyone. It's good to see you. With Bruce's permission, I am smashing my three rounds into one long poem. Uh, I'm in the work, I'm very blessed to be in the work of suicide prevention, and specifically I talk to people who feel uh, searingly alone. And so I wrote this poem um, back in December to kind of uh, create a timestamp on what I was thinking about uh, holding people even when they feel so far away. So this poem is called, I Hold You in My Heart. I do not hold you in my head, lest I lose you in my cluttered mind. I do not hold you in my palms, that you slip between my fingers and fall to the dust. I do not carry you on the soles of my feet, that I may leave you behind. I hold you here the very engine of my being, the tick-tinkering timekeeper of the soul, this miraculous hunk of flesh that beats even when I feel like it completely stops, the first thing the paramedics jumpstart when everything goes dark, the very dwelling place of the divine spark, the flicker of inspiration, the thrum of Twitter patience, the prairie fire of passion, a dripping stone-cold thaw warmed by my hearth of faith. Everything that God wants and the only real thing that I can give. My patchwork of self-worth, my sinkhole of self-esteem, my brown paper bag of shattered, broken things, my labyrinth of what-ifs, my chamber of secrets. My fault line of doubt, my requiem of grief, my graveyard of regret, my shoreline of sorrow lit by the harvest moontide of healing, and a wellspring of hope. That is where I hold you. Rooted and nourishing, woven between tissue and strings, you are warmth and light, memory and artery, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. How could I possibly forget you? Your happiness warms me all the way down like a seasoned broth on a dreary day or a cellared Bordeaux. 
Your laughter sticks to my ribs like sweet Memphis barbecue. Your kindness is a crisp breath of fresh air that I hold like collapsing airbags exploring my shipwrecked heart. I feel your pain somewhere deep and dark like my pancreas taking sweetness away from life and impossible to reach through my vice grip chest. Your sadness gets lodged in my throat like swallowing gravel, and your fear rattles my spine like clattering shutters in a roaring storm. I mesh your soul into mine, mingled like starlight in the night. A brushstroke away from an endless, swirling <coughs> sky of sapphire and gold. Perhaps the eternity placed in my heart is nestled somewhere between where I end and where you begin. Tell me, what could possibly separate you from me? Trenches dug with a spade of fear, the long shadow of shame, troubled waters with no bridge, vast oceans of unknown, skyscrapers erected to empathy's reach, a Himalayan loom of hopelessness, death's total eclipse, or a cosmic search for answers. And yet, Time rusts through my intentions like a nostalgic gate to a forgotten place. Loneliness paints everything gray. Self-doubt is a dark mirror. Brokenness and self-reliance, the brick and mortar of estrangement. Distance drifts us tectonically shifts us apart across canyons and Appalachians, rivers and roads, splintering significance, fraying the tapestry of belonging. Your loving care fades in the thick fog of life's whirling dance. Life's unfurling bloom and unrelenting cold that sinks into your bones seasons of love and loss. Full and new, blood and blue, we cycle radiant to black like the moon, phasing, I'll see you soon, to, has it really been that long? Where do the seconds, months, and years go? Maybe Salvador Dali's Sahara. Could I find the desert? I would scoop fistfuls of glistening sand, stretch this moment into thousands, and I would share it with you. Truly, it is a sacred thing to hold a moment. It is equally beautiful and fragile, like catching a firefly and marveling its ember glow within your clasp, or running your fingers along a shell that you plucked among thousands on a barefoot stroll, learning its every curve and ridge, churning your thoughts with the tide, 
only to toss it to the sea which gave it. Find yourself in this moment. Slip beneath the chop and wave into a weightless suspense of stillness, of being. Do you feel that? That swooshing, pumping, fluttering opus within you? Who do you hold there? It doesn't matter where they are. They may be in this room, or maybe putting on the kettle somewhere, walking their dog, whistling a little tune while running an errand, curled up with a good book, a good poem, calming a screaming child. Or maybe they aren't here anymore. Feel the swelling of their care rise within you, the weight of their love lace within each beat. In this moment, they do not know you are thinking about them, nor how they render this moment beautiful and steeped in meaning, how they fill you like a song, how they are pressed into your very being, nor could they comprehend the depth and breadth of the love that you have for them. And so it is with you. When you feel lost, when you feel like you don't know who you are anymore, when you feel invisible, when everything is on fire, or when the world doesn't make sense and you don't want to be here anymore. When you feel like a shell of who you once were. When you are flatlining on your darkest day. May this blessed truth find you. I am holding you in my heart. Castiles, let's give Matt Drennan stopped another hand. And you just heard a reading by Matt Dravenstadt in the uh, first round of the February 4th and the Journey Continues uh, monthly open mic reading uh, and uh, held again at the Elm Cafe. Up next from it that evening, going to hear in this order, Michael Castiles. Bob McKenzie and Meg Freer. So I haven't written very many poems in the last year. Um, I was working on a novel for a while, and so I was sort of in the frame of writing fiction and finding it hard to get back into poetry. And one thing that always used to spark my writing of poetry was taking my dog for a long walk. And so I just pull up my notebook as we were walking, and I start writing, but. My dog's getting old, and he's getting very slow, and our walks are not as long as they used to be. Um, but on Saturday night, 
I don't know why, but we just went for a walk, it was snowing, and we just ended up going for this really long walk, and I pulled out my notebook and I started jotting down uh, what turned out to be this poem. Um, and I haven't edited it yet, but uh, I just sort of typed it out. So this is uh, from that night, it's still untitled. The old dog's cautious footfalls slowly through the snow. The city slumbers, but distant traffic and dog barks shade the empty spaces through which the snowflakes lie down, catching their breath. I open the gate, age ten years while I stumble, breath billowing overhead, clouding my thoughts, snow falling faster now, like years skating through the street lights light. The ratio of seven to one traces our footsteps, and I am stooping to scoop the old dog's poop. I can't just leave it behind. And here's a truth. I avoid the stop sign's glare, avoid what's really on my mind, that time won't slow, even if you will it to, tossing a midnight poop into the garbage can in Max Jackson Memorial Park, the snow coming down faster now, killing my pen, but luckily I've got more than one. At the always stop, we breeze through, black dog now white with the passage of time, and snow falling faster now, dampening these pages, witnessing our meandering, these streets like creeks. I'd follow as a child, the wild echoing through each of our chests, residing obliquely in the air we breathe. I'm ready to turn the page, but I'm not ready to turn the page. The snow erases our footsteps on the sidewalk writing our story. An old dog and his boy, the tiny adventure of the longest walk we've been on in months. And the sign outside the first Christian Reformed Church reads, people don't fail, they give up trying. I didn't attach your leash because the streets are blanketed and somehow you're far ahead. Though you walk so slowly now, I'm always waiting for you to catch up. I don't know how we got this far. I was looking at my hands, you were looking back at me, and the sign outside the Free Methodist Church reads, Christmas, when love came down, though it's already February 2nd or 3rd, or maybe it's still the 1st, and we've found a path between where we've been and where we'll be, and there's no turning around. We're already steps ahead, and the snow is slowing. No, it's steadily descending, and we've turned a corner, tinged with the sadness of snow filling in the spaces between where we've been and where we're going. I hope our destination is the same. It's got to be. We're tethered, though we're not, because knots just get in the way. And the snow falls faster now. You lick the sidewalk. It tells you a story. A boy and his old dog the undertone of night muffled by snowfall, and again, you're ahead. Like a dream I don't want to wake up from, like a dream that leaves me gasping, like a dream that kills these pens, dampens these pages, erases the steps we've taken. Behind us, in the darkness I can't see, a bike, its bell ringing, and you're still far ahead, glancing back to make sure we're still here. We turn a corner, we're almost home, and the light afterthought. Thank you.
Bob McKenzie, let's give Michael Castillo's another hand. Okay, I brought this poem because in the two and a half or three years since I wrote it, it's had an amazing publication record, both in print and as recorded performances. And that doesn't usually happen with my poems. It's called Black Rain. Though there's no way to confirm, they say this storm began on the other side of the world, perhaps in Fukushima or Israel, spread rapidly wrapping everything everywhere in darkness. A squirrel has died above the ceiling tiles in the hallway outside my office. There are hundreds everywhere, huge black flies. For so long, the storm has not abated. I've lost track of the days spent under these black clouds of ash and the heavy rain they bring with them. The streets have become rivers, only the most courageous and the foolish venture out. From the window in my office, I see the bodies in the streets whenever the fire rains from the sky. Some say it's a sign from some god predicted by ancient prophets, punishment for all the evils of mankind. Others say it's our own fault, abusing the natural order with our science. It all sounds the same to me. All I know is, for more days than I can calculate, I have not left this campus, crawling like a rat through the tunnels to other buildings, then back to my office with what food and supplies I can scrounge. There are others too, students and professors and university staff wandering the tunnels. I do my best to avoid them. In their eyes, there's a desperation I believe will become dangerous. Best to play it safe. And as we bring up Meg Freer, let's give Bob McKenzie oh, another hand. All the sounds of summer. As gently as he once held a fledgling blue jay, he cradles his sister's arm, traces each of the thin horizontal lines he had never known were there before, saddened by scars not yet faded to white. All the sounds of summer vanish as I enter into their night, and I wonder at the fluent confidence of hands that fight for the body in such disparate ways. How to fathom the plight of molecules gone awry. Ever distressed at the sight of his own blood, though he understands artery over vein, he can't understand pain that calls out for more pain and hopes she'll fly as the fledgling he buried never did. Give Meg Freer another hand.
And you just heard readings by Michael Castiles, Bob McKenzie, and Meg Freer in the first round of the February 4th and the Journey Continues monthly open mic reading held again at the Om Cafe. Up next from it and from obviously the same event then, <laughs> here are Lyle Merriam, Jordan Lane, Tia Lun, and Sasha Hill. This is called Yard Sale. Board games and baseball gloves, books and DVDs, a family's entire history spread out for all to see. Strangers looking through the lot, looking for a deal. Five bucks for the whole collection? Man, that's really a steal. The house is being empty now that the family has grown and scattered in all directions, making history of their own. The real estate agent has been here. He spent a lot of time. He's coming back on Monday and putting up a sign. Soon there will be new kids living on the street, making their own histories, marching to their own beat. One day they too will leave behind their artifacts for all to see, their board games and baseball gloves, their books and DVDs. Thank you. As we uh, bring up Jordan Lane, let's give Lyle Merriam another hand. Uh, this one's called One Wing. One wing pointed skyward, and the other shattered, lost to a side mirror, barreling down a country road. One wing dragged around in the gravel as he chirps hoarse regret and tries to stand with this new leaden knowledge. Now he must share his world with us, graceless beasts of earth and asphalt, wondering how can it suffice to live ensnared against the dirt without the promise of escape. Let's give uh, Jordan Lane another hand. Hello. <clears throat> so uh, the working title for this one is Maybe I Related to Rocket Man Too Much. You know that Elton John that came out last year? <clears throat> Sometimes I feel a hand over mine both holding the knife as if to cut into a wedding cake I couldn't eat, and when we sink down, I can smell my shirt sleeve. The word pretty leaves me so cold, dries out my bones like salt, strips my teeth nerve bare, burns the back of my throat, like the green tea thigh scar boiled into the fat, like how no one heard the scream, and I apologized anyway. There's never enough time to grieve, never the circle it ought to be. There's always a nudge of the hand, always an urge forward. Optical illusion in which the ends never really meet, the beginning and conclusion, two parallel lines. Look for me at the bottom of swimming pools everywhere, my plunging shame coming to a theater near you. I want you to forgive me for the things I'd like to tell you. I want to fall on my knees for you. 
and I didn't even bring anything sharp. As we bring up Sasha Hill, let's give Tiamat another hand, please. And you just heard readings by Lyle Miriam, Jordan Lane, Tia Lunn, and a performance uh, song by Sasha Hill in the uh, first round of the February 4th and the Journey Continues open mic reading in that monthly series. Uh, again, held at the Yom Cafe. Uh, there was still one group left in that first round, but uh, time won't allow me uh, to air it uh, today or in this first hour. And the second hour is full to a uh, full event. Uh, takes up essentially full of that hour, so uh, less room there. So not enough time in this hour. And uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, put on a couple of these, and then I'm going to share some uh, events and uh, calls for submissions for a few minutes here in this hour, and then we'll move into the second. How's that? Let's do this now. 
Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group, while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. Folk Everything, every Saturday morning from 10 till noon on CFRC. Traditional folk, modern folk, future folk, and strange deviations from the norm. Hear the legacy of folk music and discover new favorites and forgotten classics on Folk Everything. Join me every Saturday morning at 10 for a romp through folk culture here on CFRC. Says Red to James, that's a fine motorbike. And once again, you are listening to... Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. My name again is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. And I'd like to say thanks for tuning in to the first hour today. Hope you can stay tuned for the second. I'll be airing a recently, a very recently recorded a book launch event, again at Novel Idea. Uh, and it will be Ray Robertson with a short reading and then a wonderful, very long uh, discussion after that about the subject matter in a book called How to Die, a book about being alive. And uh, here's my quick mention as well before I uh, share some calls for submissions and events with you is that uh, each hour of this show each week is uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. And you can find it there, find them there, uh, four years' worth, I guess. Uh, I have to, I can only go back four years. I've only got enough storage for four years, uh, but uh, you can get the last four years at least if you really want to go back that far. And uh, you can find them at Finding a Voice on CFRCFM.wordpress.com. And again, remain there. These readings today will be there for four years. Tell you what, there are a number of uh, calls for lit and art submissions expiring soon. And, uh, yeah, uh, I'm sure some of these before we move into the second hour. And uh, some of these are coming up very quickly. So, in fact, one is coming up this Sunday. 
uh, call for submission to Ultraviolet Magazine. They have a call out. They're looking for art, photography, poetry, and or prose. And it says, and it's from their website, uh, is uh, Ultraviolet is a 23-year-old magazine devoted to the creative arts, prose, poetry, art, photography, graphics, music, you name it, we want it. We are a student club based out of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And it says uh, we love promoting creativity both on and off campus. So if you live in Kingston or you go to Queen's uh, and you have something to submit, uh, just uh, search Ultraviolet Magazine on uh, in Facebook. Uh, there is also a website, www.ultravioletmag.com. And then if you slash with the word about after, I think it takes you to, pretty sure it takes you to the submissions page, or at least it takes you to the first page you would need to go to to get there. So how's that? Uh, there's also, I just learned about this one, but I'm getting it out. Uh, they uh, publish um, more often. I mean, they have calls for submissions. Uh, and I don't know about continuous. I'm still getting to learn about this uh, publication, but they're called Hellebut in all cap letters. And what they're looking for are micropoems. Uh, so they have a call for submissions of micropoems. Um, micro it says here is ongoing uh, with often themed calls with deadlines. Now uh, it does say they prefer unpublished. And they're looking for short forms such as haiku or haiban or tanka or even visual poems. And it says... Uh, their quote from their website is, we look for work that baits, catches, grips, hooks, uh, lures, or otherwise stirs us. And they publish, uh, or they uh, respond uh, fairly quickly, like six to ten weeks. Of special interest right now, they're looking for poems dealing with the leap year, the equinox, equinox, or solstice. So if you're if you're submitting something like that uh, into the, one of those uh, three categories, uh, you should, uh, they'd like you to put that in the subject line, uh, which issue you're, you're considering, and uh, it will be sorted then and placed with the right. Because again, uh, one, I think the, uh, the call for leapings, poems for the leap year, is actually expiring very soon, maybe even as early as Ultraviolet Magazine, but if not, I'm sure it is expiring uh, before uh, February 29th. Uh, but uh, go to their website and find out more. It's uh, halibut, H-A-L-I-B-U-T, uh, haiku, H-A-I-K-U dot blogspot dot com, and you'll get all the information you need there. The other one is, and this one expires this coming week, it's uh, one of the bigger ones that, uh, and I look forward to doing it every year. Uh, and I will give you the deadline now and again at the end, February 25th at midnight. Uh, the, it's the RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers. Usually it's just uh, one award every and every other year. It's either poetry, it goes back and forth, poetry, and then uh, prose or short fiction, and then back to poetry the next year. This year, they're actually giving out two awards, one in each. So one poetry award and one uh, short fiction award. 
the award winner will be offer, uh, given $10,000 for poetry, again, and $10,000 for, for short fiction. Uh, three finalists in each genre will also receive $2,500, a trip to Toronto to attend the award ceremony in May, and, to men- and a mentorship opportunity. Uh, to be eligible, a writer must be Canadian, a Canadian citizen or permanent resident under the age of 35 as of February 25th this year. Uh, previously published in an independently edited literary magazine or anthology, unpublished in book form and without a book contract. Again, the call deadline, February 25th at midnight. There's a Facebook page, so just search for uh, Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers, and I'm sure it'll pull it up. Uh, If you want to find it uh, online, www.writersfest.com slash awards and uh, slash rbc dash bronwyn dash wallace dash award and at that point I'm sure you, it's longer but you, that, that will take you there uh, let's go ahead and move into events we have coming up we've got like a lot of things happening i don't know that we have anything happening this weekend well yes we do uh tomorrow uh, and this is a uh, writing workshop so i want to spend some time on this uh, and then i'll maybe get well, uh, the 29th again uh, there's some in fact there are some things coming this week so uh, uh kingston front act public library is uh Hosting a writing workshop, uh, uh, Renga Poetry and Leonard Cohen. Uh, and facilitating that workshop will be Kingston Poet Laureate uh, Jason Haru. And uh, the workshop is tying Renga Poetry with Leonard Cohen's work. And for those of you that might not know what Renga is, it's a genre of Japanese collaborative poetry written by different authors in conversation. And it said uh, centuries after it began, uh, the opening stanza of Renga gave rise to the haiku. So now you kind of know a little history. So they're they're wanting to have like a 15-person workshop. And uh, the workshop is open to those 15 uh, years old and older. It will begin with a discussion of Cohen's work. Then participants will use Cohen's verse to initiate a series of Renga poems. It will... Actually, uh, this program uh, will be offered in conjunction with the February 25th Grand On Stage uh, Grand Theater On Stage uh, presentation of Les Ballets, uh, Jazz de Montreal's Dance Me, which was itself inspired by the work of Leonard Cohen. So, uh, for more information to that 25th, you can find that on their website. Uh, please go to www.kfpl.ca. Again, this is happening tomorrow afternoon from 1 to 2.30. Uh, it says the workshop is free, but seating is limited. Uh, so uh, please register to secure a spot at calendar.kfpl.ca. So go to their website, www.kfpl.ca. You can secure a place there, and you can also find out more information. 
coming up this week, Wednesday, uh, February 26th. The Union Gallery will host a performative reading of A Love Letter to Audrey Lard by uh, Devin uh, West. Uh, that's happening Wednesday, February 26th at 6 p.m. in the Union Gallery uh, on Queens Campus in Stafford Library. And immediately, almost after that, uh, uh, Wednesday, February 26th from 8 to 9.30, doors at 7.30. Queen's Poetry Slam meets uh, uh, the last Wednesday night of each month. Uh, the Queen's is in, section, in session at the Grad Club. So doors open at 7.30. There are five open mic slots, 12 slam spots, uh, admissions $5. Pay what you can. It is an all-ages event. Again, the Grad Club is located at 162 Berry Street, and it looks like I've run about a half a minute over, but at least I think I got everything uh, that was happening this week. So, welcome back in, into, I guess, at this point, the second hour uh, by, what, 45 seconds uh, into uh, this uh, sh show today. And uh, just again, you're listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. Uh, we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And uh, my name's Bruce, uh, and here every Friday afternoon at from 4 to 6, if I didn't already say that, I kind of jumped around in the intro a little there. So in this second hour, uh, from a very recent uh, book launch and reading event, held at Novel Idea Bookstore. You're going to hear uh, Ray Robertson launching, essentially reading a bit uh, for a very short time uh, from his new book called How to Die, about a book about being alive, published by uh, Biblioasis. And then uh, that shortish reading was followed by a very, very long discussion uh, which will really almost take us to the end of the hour today. So sit back. It was it was a wonderful event that evening there at Novel ID, and this happened uh, just, uh, well, a little over a week ago, February 13th. So here we go. And I do believe uh, he is introduced by the uh, Novel ID uh, bookstore's owner, uh, Oscar Milan. Here we go. I'm just saying, we're, we're getting used to having him come around, yes. like, you know, every other year or so, and it's been good, and some of them have been more memorable than others, for some, <laughs> staff is still recovering from the last time Ray and Mara were here. Some yeah. of the staff at the Toucan are still recovering. <laughs> That's a separate problem, including one of the bouncers. But anyway, uh, while, while here, Sorry, it's always entertaining and always worth having Ray around. time I, I asked to go I think this is the fourth book I'm gonna sit it feels like story time <laughs> this is by far, yeah um, so I said let's do something in Kingston because uh, when I got got um, Ruby to do the, the Toronto launch and some things we did last week coming up and I was thinking geez you know this is 12 books and usually in life you get less appreciative as time goes on right and with 12 books, I figure I can't believe I can still get away with this. The people actually on a freezing cold night. This was, this was the, the deal with the salespeople who you rarely listen to, but they made a real hard case for releasing this book in January because 
self-renewal, you know, the new year kind of deal, and I fought it and said, yeah, but I have to go to Kingston in February, you know? I said, no, so it's worked out well. But I just want to say thanks to the store, because I actually asked, and it always feels like um, this is sort of the ideal thing, to have an independent bookseller that cares about the book and, and to do it. So what I'd like to do is pretty informal. Uh, I'd like to read for both real short, I think it's eight minutes or so, or eight or nine minutes, and then uh, my hope is that someone will have some question, or if they don't, I'll compel them, force them into, and then we can have a bit of a conversation, because I always find that the most fun. So, sound okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. We already have questions. Okay. <laughs> I'll be taking selective questioning. Um, so, the, what I pick, what, what I, so, yeah, this is only the third time or fourth time I've done something in the book. I'm just going to read something that sort of I think represents what the book is, and it's mostly from the introduction. Um, yeah. No one forgets their first time. It's the other first time, the one that darkens the mind rather than delights the body. It isn't always in, as instantly memorable. But it's there, somewhere, along with the initial recognition that our parents aren't the wisest, most powerful people in the world who will always be there to protect us that people don't have to love us back just because we want them to, and that the game of life doesn't come with a set of inviolable rules that everyone is obliged to follow in the interest of fair play. Not that it's difficult to understand why we don't always remember the precise time and place when we first became aware, however dimly, of death, that everyone is going to die, that I'm going to die. Human beings tend to hide from what hurts, or at least attempt to. But grandma's funeral, or the family pet's last visit to the veterinarian, or a flattened frog in the middle of the street remind us of what we try to forget, but never entirely can. Someone once asked me if I was ever tempted to revisit a character or a storyline from one of my novels. I could honestly say that I hadn't, that it sounded like work, something I tried hard my entire life to avoid. That was a joke, so if you want to go with it, loosen things up a bit. Actually, I was, I was disappointed. I did this, I read in Windsor last time, and the person who asked me that question wasn't there, but he, he called ahead and bought a book, so I thought, oh, gosh. <laughs> so it was okay. It also sounded boring, which for me is even worse. How can the reader be expected to care if the author doesn't? This changed after I wrote Why Not 15 Reasons to Live, a collection of essays completed after enduring a deep depression brought on by finishing a long, difficult novel amidst the debilitating symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorder. How to Die, though, isn't a sequel to Why Not, but rather a continuation of the conversation begun in the latter book's final chapter, Death. A conversation with whom? With myself, of course. That I graduated with a degree in philosophy says less about my analytical reasoning skills or deep knowledge of any particular thinker or branch of philosophy than it does my desire at the end of my undergraduate career to complete my degree so I could do something else. Simply put, philosophy, which as far back as high school had seemed the zenith of human activities, had become a bore. There's that word again. There have been plenty of inspired and inspiring books encountered along the way, but I came to le learn these works and others like them weren't considered real philosophy by the academic community. Instead, they were dismissively lumped together as, I'm going to do a lot with this, wisdom literature. That's an actual quote from my venerable professor. As if that was some kind of diminishment, mere wisdom literature. At best, entertaining bellatra, at worst, artsy-fartsy blather and bluster. A real philosopher was someone like Hegel, 
who, like the majority of his professorial brethren, wrote for other professors in a language seemingly created to deter comprehension about subjects as far removed from the everyday philosophical questions and concerns of most human beings as the ugly, ungainly style they employed was from lucid, illuminating prose. As it is with music, so it is with philosophy. If it doesn't swing, it's hard to understand the words or care. One of these items of wisdom literature I discovered during these years was Montaigne, someone I continued to enthusiastically read long after I decided that fiction was a better and much more enjoyable way of taking reality's temperature. Although Montaigne offered opinions on virtually every subject imaginable, these ideas weren't the only fruit of his labors. Often they were the least compelling part. Montaigne was born in, and remained a Catholic, but his ruminations on religion and humankind's place in the universe, for example, were just that an unflappable, unhurried uh, exploration of every aspect of whatever subject happened to interest him, whether that led him into profundity, confusion, or even contradiction. One of the many pleasures of reading Montaigne is the sense that one is not so much reading a book as simply listening to an amiable, amusing, intellectually ecumenical human being thinking aloud about a variety of subjects that interest him. Ultimate conclusions and logical consistency be damned. As befits the originator of the modern essay, Montaigne wrote foremost to find out what he thought, and his readers are invited along to listen in while he attempts to do so. Maybe best of all, Montaigne is good company. He was also a dedicated amateur classicist, the very best kind of aficionado. His famous tower in Bordeaux, where he retired to ponder life and compose his essays, was packed with volumes by these cher cherished authors for the same reason that the house of the early 18th century Scottish poet James Thompson was similarly stocked. To cheer the gloom, their studious let me sit and hold high converse with the mighty dead. That's a good place to stop for wine, I think, for James Thompson. <laughs> hold high converse with the mighty dead. Montaigne's work is embroidered with the best that had been thought and said by these mighty dead, and he himself anticipated a possible objection to his literary method. Someone might say of me that I have only here made up a bunch of other people's flowers, having furnished nothing of my own but the thread to tie them. But Montaigne's point of view is rarely overwhelmed by these other voices, which only serve to embellish and illuminate the essayist's own thoughts and feelings. Nearly 500 years of writers who have been inspired by and attempted to emulate his method may have not been as successful, myself included, but that's one of the reasons one keeps writing. Maybe next time you'll get it right, or at least closer to what it's supposed to be. If How to Die, a book about being alive, was supposed to be anything, it's an examination of death, what it is, and how we think about it, counterbalanced by a spirited rebuttal from life. When I told a friend I was writing this book, she replied, what do you know about death? That's a good question. All I could think to answer was, as much as anybody who hasn't died yet, I guess. <laughs> Additionally, an odd thing happens when one reaches the mid-century mark people start to die. Not just any people either, but people you know well and sometimes even love. Colleagues, friends, family. And people you don't know, but have known all your life anyway. The sports and musical heroes, the movie actors and newsmakers of our youth and early adulthood, most of whom, even before they die, slowly fade from pu public consciousness, only to be replaced by new, younger icons who will, in their time, endure their own eclipse as well. I remember the first time this sort of hit me, you know. Uh, we were having uh, breakfast somewhere, and uh, and the newspaper it usually had uh, celebrities born on this date, so it's always fun. Guess how old we are? And we didn't know a single person. <laughs> and I reminded my mother, I don't know who these people.
aren't all bombed. Like, who is Sassy Pants 6? What is this? I don't know. That's not a real rapper, but something like that. <laughs> Favorite restaurants and bars and businesses, too, begin to disappear with regularity, along with things less brick and mortar tangible, but no less significant. When I moved to Toronto 35 years ago, 35, no, it can't be, do the math again. Toronto meant Queen Street West secondhand book buying and dive bar slumming and city TV. It meant Maple Leaf Gardens and the Brunswick House. It meant seven, count them, seven repertory theaters. Now, what used to be Queen Street Cool is chiefly a shopping destination for 905ers visiting the city for the afternoon. City TV is a media conglomerate's neutered facsimile of it once proudly <laughs> independently was. Maple Leaf Gardens is a Loblaws and the adored Brunny, home of so many Bacchanalian stunts and shenanigans, is a Rexall. And most people I know, myself included, get their movies on Netflix or other streaming services, eliminating the need to ever even leave the house. No doubt there are new secondhand bookstores and charmingly sleazy bars, new ways the city's electronically connected and sees itself, new ways of being what it means to be a Torontonian. But it's unlikely I would know about them. Why would I? It's not really my city anymore. One generation passeth, another generation cometh, and ain't and drag. <laughs> the question isn't then why I think or write about extinction, our own and everyone and everything else's, but, pardon the pun, why not? Not that my every thought on the subject will prove agreeable or even entirely convincing to everyone. As Montaigne reminded himself and us, what do I know? He carved this over the door to his, his studio where he wrote. And that's a good thing. If I'm not making some people angry, I'm probably not doing my job. And if it's true that we're disposed to like people who like us, writers don't or shouldn't like readers who agree with everything they write. A book, particularly a book like this, is a conversation, first between the author and him or herself, then between the writer and the reader. And when people converse, sometimes they disagree. But sometimes it's out of such disagreements that we come to a better, clearer understanding of what we actually do believe. I never thought when I wrote this last, I'm gonna read the last paragraph here, I never thought that I would have an opportunity to use audio-visual aids at a reading, but I have a tattoo of a skull and roses on my right forearm, so I can pass that around. <laughs> I got it because I'm a deadhead of the grateful variety, but also because I'm married to an artist, so it had to be a pretty good image. It's such an apposite image for existence. Enclosing the outline of the skull with black holes for eyes is a garland of fresh red roses. Death in life, life in death. If there's a thesis to how to die, a book about being alive, it's that if we gain a better understanding of what death is, we'll also know more of what life consists. Montaigne claimed that my trade and my art is living. Nice work, if you can get it. May we all be so profitably occupied. Yeah. Yeah. So we got buttons and I'm ready to talk about stuff. <laughs> Stephen though, you spend two years writing it, so it's time to come out now and your mole little eyes are like this. People, so this is exciting, you know. Or you have to go back in your room. So I came out tonight, so we're out in the world. I'm going to buy your book, and I'm going to buy a copy of uh, Montaigne's essays. I think if, if uh, Oscar's got a oh, copy. Oh, that's bad. 
That's bad. Well, because I'll no, look really good, bad. No, the ones that you've, you've inspired me to buy your book and Montaigne, and I've read some of the essays, but of not all of well, them. Well, the beauty of Montaigne, as we were talking about, is that I don't think I, number one, I haven't read all of the essays, and I didn't start at the beginning. I was like, well, that subject sounds interesting. That was that one. And you can see the development. But that's the reason that uh, I, I talked about Montaigne, and I probably should have talked more about death. But Montaigne was so important in this book, and this would be interesting to Stephen and I, if no one else, um, because Dan Wells edited this book. And I handed him a really good long essay, and he helped me turn it into a really good short book. And the thing that wasn't, didn't exist before was the introduction. And Montaigne was throughout the book, but I didn't realize that I wrote the introduction that really Montaigne was the spirit of it. Montaigne was one of the reasons that I left philosophy. I thought, this is really what, and I saw it wasn't academically prestigious or acceptable, but it seems such an odd, it was the voice again, and I think that's one of the things we look for, poet, short story writer, whatever. Whatever she's writing, you just feel like the other day. Uh, I was um, I was reading some Stevie Smith, and I just pulled her, pulled a, a book off the shelf. I was reading. It wasn't even her poems; it was some of her letters. And I just felt a little more capable of going out into the world that day and not taking any shit because I had that voice. And I think that's one of the neat things when I, when I did the revision, and I'm sure some many of you are right. Some of you are writers. I felt like this was the way the book was supposed to be, which of course is made up. You didn't wasn't supposed to be anything. But once I did the rewrite and put, put Montaigne at the beginning and said, oh, he's sort of the guide through, not the guide, but he's my partner through this. It's like, oh, now it all fits together. And when that happens, then you start seeing other connections. Um, one of the, one of the uh, epigraphs is from a Philip Larkin poem, which I'm sure some people know, called Days. What are days for? Days are where we live. They come, they wake us, time and time over. They are happy to be in. Where can we live but days? And then when I was, after we had finished the book, I was reading over the last paragraph before the afterward. And, but to say that human life is tragic isn't the same as claiming the living of it is it as well. The days are tragic, or excuse me, the years are tragic, but the days are jubilant, Edith Wharton wrote. And until the years we've been allowed are gone, we have the days jubilant or not. I mean, I never even made that connection to still. I shouldn't be admitting that. I did mean that, actually. It was all planned. <laughs> i got to finish reading the last paragraph because it's a great quote from Bloom. One of the things you'll see if, if you do look at the book is that I don't use a lot. Of, I spent a little bit of time in the beginning being snarky about philosophers, kind of like getting back at uh, that. But I, I use a lot of, of writers, essays or novels or whatever. And so, blah, 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 jubilant or not. Leopold Bloom in Ulysses, melancholically musing to himself at an acquaintance's funeral finally rouses himself with the thought that plenty to see and hear and feel yet. Feel live warm beings near you. Let them sleep in their maggoty beds. They are not going to get me this innings. Warm beds. Warm, full-blooded life. And one of the neat things is, is that uh, um, and I'm sure a lot of people here know this, these connections start to be made that you didn't know, that you're, you can tie them all up. And it's, it's, uh, I think Carver was when he said he didn't really like writing, but he liked nothing like better than rewriting, because you can start to see all the connections and all that. So mm -hmm. I know no one really asked me any of this. <laughs> I've enjoyed this immensely. <laughs> How long was the book uh, before Dan got yeah, his hands Well, on? you know what? That's, well, you know, the book was probably the same length. I ended up cutting stuff that I didn't need and then adding uh, the introduction. It's really the same number. I often find that if I cut 2,000 words, I'll end up adding two, but the right two. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, it just felt like the right size. I also knew, uh, uh, I didn't know before I began how, how the size of the book, but when I started writing it, I realized that it had to be, the mental image I had was of a, um, 
one of those black cat firecrackers when you're a kid, those like terribly little, you know? And they were the smallest, but they're the ones that always like, geez, really? Just, you know? And, and I wanted this book to be like that. I wanted it to be, because I think the subject matter is, um, the, the, the book, I did mean that in the sense that it's a, 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 a discussion of death with a spirit of rebuttal from life. And I wanted that tension to be there. And I don't think I could sustain that over 500 pages, you know? I wouldn't want to read that book, let alone write it. And I, it's, it, it came into the same size, but it felt like the right proportions, which is always a really good feeling. You know? Plus the woman who did this, I think she just did. I told Dan that I'm, I'm, I want to work. She, um, it was her idea with the crow. And what I thought was great about it was that it is a serious subject, but it's a bit of a, take a step back from this serious subject and have I mean, the tragedy and the comedy and the flip side, the whole deal. So I just think that she did a wonderful... You just want to pick this book up. You just want to... Which is such a wonderful thing in a day and age where, you know, what, why would you read a book? You can read it online. It's these, these beautiful objects. I think that's what's great about stores like this and publishers like Bigly Oasis. They're saying, oh, this is the drift? Okay, we're going we're gonna to give you exactly what you don't want. We're going to make beautiful books that people care about the words, and we're not going to sell scented candles do that kind of deal, you know? And that's why I, was, it was, I really wanted to come here tonight and have this discussion, so. <laughs> great, my wife's the guy I know. No, I got so many questions. This is a first, she's never had to do this before, okay. Uh, is there sections about you, you mean? No, I'll look no, no, in no. here and I'll see um, I just find that readings, it gets to be you can read the book. I had a friend, I guess I still have a friend, I haven't seen him many, many years, and he's a friend of ours. Well, Dan, before Dan was Dan Wells, the publisher of the Oasis, and he was, um, do you remember the story I want to tell about Martin, the guy who runs the He was a big fan of Russell Banks, and Dan said, Russell Banks is coming to town, dear. And he said, okay. And then next time he saw him, he said, well, you weren't there. And he said, what am I, infinite? I need to be read to. I love the guy's work. I, I mean, you know, so I just feel, I don't know, I just enjoy the, the back and forth. I don't know. All you're getting is eight minutes. That's it. <laughs> That's it. So I have some people that you've read to yes. and other readings asked you questions about uh, fear of death, afterlife, stuff yeah. like that. And you must touch on that. Because what occurred to me right. at a certain point is, uh, you know, like, like anyone, oh, a young person, I was afraid of dying. And then at right. a certain point it occurred to me, right. eternity might mean my own ego chattering away to itself the way it does all the time for... And, you know, infinity. And I just thought, right. wow, okay, <laughs> now death looks a lot better. Or at least it, like, it... Yeah, it, and it, that was one of the fun things. So what I have is someone saying that. Um, Shakespeare says, if, if all of life was was pleasure, we would die of boredom, you know. And then you right. have Dostoevsky saying, no matter how bad life is, if you were standing in crime punishment, he was because he was faced a firing squad, right? He said, if I was forced to stand on a cliff just there, that would be okay as long as I didn't do it. So throughout the book, I'll say, well, on the one hand, on the other hand, and sort of, you know, go through that tension between the two of them. And that was one of the things that I, that, that Dan suggested and I talked about in the introduction was, there's a lot of things in here that will probably be not just disagreeable, but offensive to some people. And so I make it very clear, for example, although it comes from a fairly agnostic point of view, a lot of the ways that I got there were, were through, um, I say I studied philosophy, actually, I, I, halfway through I changed to religious, I did philosophy major and religious major, because I found the philosophy department wasn't asking these questions. They were talking, you know, 
was the analytical philosophy, et cetera. So I was reading Martin Buber and Simone Weil and Tillich and Reinhold Niebuhr and Nicholas Berjaev, all these people who probably have a very different metaphysical take on the universe, but it was their open openness to these questions. So the book, I think, is full of um, this tension between... I always loved this line by Tillich when he said, you know, you know what is your goal as a theologian? And he said, well, I want to help the unbeliever gain belief, and I want to drive the believer to disbelief. That's that nice. tension yeah. that really is when you're alive, you know? And one of the things about in the book, I think, is that we come through, and there's been voices from antiquity, you know, is that the, the cognizance of death, not only what you were saying, so that cessation, uh, you know, the, the writer Jean Ray, she said, basically, I want to I wanted earn my death. I want to sort of, you know, burn, not burn out, but like that way. But but one of the things that was, uh, oh, no, I forgot. Is anyone writing all this down? Back to me. Um, just the tension between the two was fun because I, I, even though I think I'm fairly settled in the book, I did change. I didn't change my idea. Someone asked me uh, um, over the course of I don't know, reading or interview or something was, have, did my ideas of death change? Because it is an essay, and, and Montaigne was an attempt. So I didn't come in with a point of view that I'm going to put across. You know, I don't. Uh, I think it's a conversation, but I did feel less alone in this because I realized that, you know, you quote some, I can't find the top of my head, but, you know, some 2,300-year-old Greek poets, you know, taking a pee in his, and looking at the stars in his backyard or whatever they had back then, they had backyards, I don't know, <laughs> whatever they had, and sort of saying, it was right out in front, it was in front of the house. <laughs> <of> the <street. laughs> exactly. They were so free, the Greeks, you know, and the... Uh, and I thought, yeah, I feel exactly the same way. Like, how can I, I feel so wonderfully humbled by all of this. You know, my wife's from up north, 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 you know, where like waves freeze and stuff. And that's, it's very scary. And, but she has a sense of the sublime that I don't have. And I think you need to be, and I think that's one of the things when I spent, however long I spent writing the book was, a lot of it was, say, um, these different ways. And I think it's, it's just a deeper awareness of, the fragility of existence, which I think is one of the things that yeah. the book is about. Because if you don't, that's the other argument about for death. I go through you know, all the different, you know, the pre, the, the, the pre-Socratics, and one of the arguments is that if, if we didn't die, we wouldn't know the value of life. You know, we wouldn't be able to say, uh, well, you know what, I better, you know. Maybe there'd I, there'd maybe, be no maybe, sense of urgency, no desire right, to live or see right, or experience you know, I've been beauty. talking about if learning. You had, uh, if you had 100 million infinite. years. We know, yeah, basically human nature is such that, yeah, because we'd say, you know, I'll learn Mandarin next week, right? Yeah. And if you, you know, God, 300 years have passed. Jeez, you know, I should really get on that. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's one of the inter inter interesting aspects of it. Death to me is, I mean, uh, um, you, you spoke, well, last time we did this, you, when you introduced me, one nice compliments, you said, Ray writes the books he wants to write, which isn't a good career move, but it's a good, um, it's the only way I can write, because I, I, I have to be, you know, interested. And I, I wasn't, and I, I put this book off for a while. I, I mentioned it to Dan years ago, but I couldn't find a way into it that I thought, well, am I going to spend a year thinking about death? I mean, I'm already kind of, you know, kind of a dark guy anyway, you know? <laughs> And I thought, no, it's not about death. It's about that 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 sense of how, wh what can we get from death? What what can death teach us? Um, probably in that time period, we had a few people die. People, a couple of people younger than us, one far younger, a friend of ours, Priscilla Uppel, but a friend oh, of ours, yeah. uh, he died. And uh, Mara's sort of it wasn't a mantra, but she'd say occasionally, uh, you know, Ro Rob doesn't have get to have a cup of coffee this morning and see how nice it is outside. You know, that simple. 
And then, but I had to think that we had a better walk that day. Maybe, maybe we got into a fight halfway through it, or maybe we, it started to rain. But there was that initial like, yeah, yeah. And not being pissy because there isn't milk for the coffee, or that day the park was, there was some, you know. And it, it's not a panacea. That's just what human nature needs. We constantly need to be roused from our torpor and our apathy. And, 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 and so just basically the, the, be like, yeah, well, you know what? I bet you if Rob here, he wouldn't be complaining that, you know, the coffee's not quite as... So like just for a minute, it takes you out of ego nature, which is always looking at the little flaws and like, why, you know, why is this not perfect? Right. Instead into that other right. state, that sort of dream state, night mind state, where you're, you're actually right. looking up at the yeah. sky and thinking, wow, this is really amazing. Yeah. And that's why one of the things the last, this will be our 11th year. Actually, the last time we were here... We haven't had the best luck. Well, it wasn't too snowy tonight. But last year, <laughs> do you remember? Well, you remember. It was April. We were having a bike down the street. And uh, I swore like a tumbleweed blew down Prince. It was a storm. <laughs> and Mara had got a text just then. It said, a, a friend was at our cottage looking after our dog, or camp is it, I should say. And it had fallen. and fell. So there was this enormous storm. And the year time before that, there was this enormous construction. So I just feel lucky there's no storms. <laughs> but it's still early, right? <laughs> but what were you saying? I want to continue with that. You were saying about um, I got off topic. Oh, uh, just like the that ego state that we keep getting right. pulled back into, and it takes a shock to wake us right. and push us right. out of that state into this. I don't know what to call it, yeah. but like the larger right. mind the state, larger. soul state. And I that's what that's, that's why I would rather quote Blake in here than Heidegger, because I think Blake had a deeper understanding. Not to put it down Heidegger, because he had his poetic. <laughs> Heidegger doesn't need any PR from me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you want me to read some? I'm gonna get, you know, I had to go through and say, well, why isn't this going to be, you know, I have a friend who, who he didn't graduate, but we did philosophy. He said, oh, so this is your philosophy book. And I said, no, it's not my philosophy book. Because I talk about how, um, okay, hold on. Well, I quote Flannery O'Connor when she says, no reader who doesn't actually experience, who isn't made to feel, is going to believe anything the writer merely tells him. The first and most obvious characteristic of good writing that deals with reality through what can be seen, heard, taste, and smell. So here's Heidegger talking about depth. Taking a crack at the subject, the characteristic Heideggerian clarity and linguistic grace. <laughs> the existential project of an authentic being toward death must thus set forth the factors of a being which are constitutive for its understanding of death. And the sense of being toward this possibility without fleeing it or covering it over. And then you have Sartre, who's his protege. Death is not my possibility of no longer realizing a presence in the world, but rather not always possibility, annihilation of my possibles, which are outside my possibility. Not making this up. And then, of course, we come to Nietzsche, who is uh, very important in this book. He says, they all muddy their waters to make them appear deep. And I was like, oh, yeah, I want to do that. I want, I want to spend more time with that. And so you got more Nietzsche, you got more Blake, you got more Emily Dickinson. You know, when Emily Dickinson says the brain is wider than the sky, that's that sense of, whoa, you know, we Everything is, and then when we're gone, this little, little thing that's in here, all the flesh, it all, and that whole cosmos is gone. I mean, it's harder and harder. What's you know the cliche is that uh, experience kills curiosity. I think as time goes on, it's harder and harder to get because you can't say, "Wow, I wonder what it'd be like to have a button." That would be amazing. Well, I have a button. <laughs> it's great, but I know I'm going to end up wake up with like 14 buttons and you know, all sadness and so. But I still find it pretty amazing that. There's that tension between this seems really important, and yet you 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 step outside and you you know you, you look up at the stars and you know not in the city and you go it really isn't. But yet 
it is and it isn't. And that tension, I think, is what gives us a uniqueness. You know, Aristotle's the only thing that different from animals is the capacity to reason. You know, what you do with it is, and I think one of the things we can do with it is contemplate on our, what do you want to call it, our, our predicament or our, our, whatever this opportunity we've been given. And I think we have to constantly labor against apathy and, and have it. You know, one of the things that I, I quote from Shelley's defense of poetry, it's not about poetry, he's just saying we have to scrape the film of familiarity from our eyes. Yeah. You know, blunted by repetition. We just can't, and that's a good life. That means, you know, you've got a good life. You've got things, and you've got things to do. And, and then before you know it, you know, that's the, the John Lennon line, right? Life is what happens when you make another plan. It's like, whoa, you know. And when you hit 50, it's hard to deny that. People start dying, places start disappearing. And um, so I feel fortunate that about 10 years ago, I felt that I couldn't write a novel in a novel. I needed a novel, and I needed a different kind of uh, way of using um, you know, your skills. And so this was, it was the right, I don't think I could have written this book when I thought to write it four years ago. I don't think that I was in the, had the right flavor. And um, so yeah, I, yeah. Do you address Tolstoy's idea there? Like, I guess toward, he experimented mm -hmm. with a lot of different visions of mm -hmm. life and death. Towards the end of his life, he decided that if there was not an afterlife, if your consciousness didn't survive death, right. then life was meaningless. Right. And I, I, no, I love Tolstoy, but I fundamentally disagree. I mean, it, that makes no sense to me, and yet it's it's the way a lot of people think. Yeah. So you, I mean, life life does, it doesn't become meaningless just because you die. But right, and and, and that's the thing that I I, I, I certainly thought that, that was pretty profound. That's when I saw my first Woody Allen movie. It's like if, if life doesn't oh God, life's meaningless. <laughs> it's like oh no. You know, you're watching this in your parents' basement at 18. Oh no, life's meaningless. You know, um, and it's very much Dostoevsky's point of view as well. In the absence of that's the whole deal of crime and punishment. It, it, can we make up morality, right? He's doing a good yeah. thing by killing this woman and, mm -hmm. and this basically keeps her sister in slavery and blah, blah, blah. And he's going to use this money to become a lawyer to save his sister from basically indentured servitude to this guy. But Dostoevsky as well, unless we have the, the then it's me. And I think that's one of the things that's interesting about, ironically, about a lot of these reli religious Christian existentialists was they didn't hold that, even though mm, they did. That's right. You know, they were more like meaning is, is, is existential in the sense that there could be an experience with music or with love or with, um, you know, Carlsbad Jasper talks about ex extremes, extreme situations. Like if, um, you know, you, you, you help a, a family member something through a medical emergency or something. And then eventually you get back to the Netflix and, I mean, um, uh, Flo, was it Flo, no Proust? I guess I don't know. One of those French people. I don't know. Um, he he was I think it was Flaubert. He was there at the ad no Proust. The advent of the telephone, and everyone was kind of going bananas because it was like you know I can talk to someone who's half a mile away. He said, "You just wait. Within five years, we'll be complaining about the reception." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and of course he's right. It's like. You know, I called Europe and the reception was, you're calling someone and it always blows my mind. You know, you, you, you wake up, because I can't sleep on planes. So we woke up in, uh, well, in Warsaw. We, took, we flew from Serbia, we stayed the night in Warsaw, and we flew to Toronto. And so I woke up in Warsaw, went to the gym, I worked out, and then that night I'm sitting in my shed, you know, smoking a joint, listening to music, thinking, Wait, I woke up in Warsaw today and I'm complaining about jet lag? That's kind of on me, really. Yeah. I'm the one who decided to fly. And, and it happens, and it's just, I guess that's part of our, our appeal. We're always trying to further, how can we do better? How can we improve? But at the same time, I really think this, 
some of the reason this book has done okay is because it's sort of caught that wave of that mindfulness movement, which is a cheesy thing, but it is really true. Oh no, it's very. It's, it's so, well, not not it's the so term. But, no, no, I know what you mean though. But like, yeah. like, well, you know, what's Blake saying? He's saying, you know, you step on that 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 you know bumblebee, and that bumblebee's had a lot of interesting experience. It's been going all over the world and doing this, you know, world in a grain of sand. Um, but we're very busy, and we don't notice these things, you know. Boober talks about his cat. He says, when I'm playing with my cat, am my cat playing with me, maybe? The cat's like, oh, the big one wants to play the ball in the eye. <laughs> the bad, you know. Um, because, like you said, that, that we're locked in. And that's what gives you human beings, I guess, their uniqueness. We can, these projects. But at the same time, uh, I, I was bereft of, a, of, a, of a, a natural, like I grew up in the suburbs, and I moved to the city. And like I say, 11 years ago, uh, this little... I say I say cottage, but it is it's camp. People from the north call them camps, but y'all, you know, um, and it's really helped me in that sense of sort of. Um, we go on Fridays, come back on Mondays, May through October, and I don't have internet or anything. In the first couple hours, there's this itchy sense of I should be yeah. responding. I should be getting, and then uh, that night it starts to go, and then by Sunday, yeah, sun, and then Monday I go home and I'm. Back on it. I'm not. I'm pretty good. I, mean, I don't even have a cell phone, so I'm not the worst offender. But I know that we're all, and I think these tools that we have. And this is getting off topic, but a little bit. I think the tools that we have, the technological tools, which are great. You know, you're visiting your parents, so you say, "Look, I'm. We're we're going to be a half hour late," so it makes them feel less stressed. But there's something about this constant interaction and constant use of this this very limited but very powerful tool we have for reason. And I think we're missing out on something. And I think that's why we need good art. It's not a little chair we put on our life and say, you know what, I have a good job, I have kids, and I also have a little bit of art. Somewhere. No, it's like, I don't know how we can fully, it's just, it's just pure selfishness. I just don't know how I could have as good a life if I didn't occasionally read something, watch something, listen to something um, that didn't make me realize, whoa, slow down, you know, start paying a little more attention. Is this really worth all of this? Um, and uh, you know, if, if you're if you're a religious believer, you have that. You have a Bible, and you you, you know, in times of stress, you do that. You know? And I think that if you don't, I think it's just as important that you. I found that the last I talk about this in the book. I used to um, about uh, oh god, so long ago now, 2005. Whenever I finish books, I get into trouble. So friends of mine who own two record stores, they gave me a record player, um, which I hadn't had since I was a kid. And they gave me a record player, and of course, they knew I'd spent a lot of money at their stores. And, <laughs> and, and it was great, and uh, so Basement had, I don't know, 1,500 records, and now I'm down to about 700. In the last three or four years, I've been getting rid of records, because I came home one day and I realized I had bought, I really need this record, I already had a copy of it, I hadn't played the first one. It was more just about, and I thought, like, who, what am, I'm just creating a problem for Mara one day. You know, when I, ha when I die, and there's going to be 1,500 records for her to sell somebody, and so I said, like, well, what records am I going to actually listen to? What ones are important to me? So it was nice to get a little bit of money, but also it was sort of say, okay, this is basically it. You know, you hit 50, self-improvement's over, really. You know, you're not, you're not really, you're, you're not gonna, you're just, it's fine tuning, but it's not like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a more giving person. That's not gonna happen, but you can be a little less of an asshole, a little bit, you know? And I felt the same way with, with books as well. I've gotten rid of a lot of books. I still have a nice library, but um, I'd rather, you know, go to my shelf and, and, and have, you know, there's my Stevie Smith, there's my Blake, as opposed to, you know, when you're young. Am, am I ever really going to read Spengler's Decline of the West? I should. It's not going to happen, <laughs> right? 
I'm not impressing anybody anymore. I got on the shelf. And it feels, it, I guess it's what we were talking about with the ego. You know, I, I'm seeing, I've got probably, you know, if I'm lucky, and you never know, maybe 25 years or so. What do I want to do with that time other than be a better friend and partner and, 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 and son to my parents? But also, I guess this is how this book has helped me. It's sort of helped me clarify my thoughts about it's time to go deeper into it. I talk in here about how um, I've just been t t dipping my toe in jazz the last few years. I certainly don't know it. And I'll never know because a guitar to me is a sound. A horn doesn't have that same interest. But going into this world and going deeper into it, and the roots of it were in my record collection because I started listening to a lot of uh, Dwayne Allman and his guitar solos. Well, who is he influenced by? Not other guitar players. Well, kind of blue on Miles Davis, John Cole. Oh, I'll get those things. And it was all right there. I didn't have to go. And it's exciting. I mean, that's one of the ways we lie to ourselves. It's like, you know what I'll do now? I'll go out and get all these. No, just get a couple and sit down and listen. Like yeah, Seneca is huge in this book. Well, Letters to a Stoic. Yeah. Well, one of my favorite lines from this well, one of my favorite lines of the book is, I didn't write it, of course. Why, why not? Yeah, someone said, uh, Seneca, he said, anything that can happen can happen today. You know, you know it's going to, but like, we, we've been talking about snow tires for five years. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't in the books. This is free. This is like bonus tracks. And uh, so every year I always say, I always try not to do it because it's expensive. And the whole, oh, Mara, we don't need it. We've got a couple parents who are older, so we should, you know, we should, we should. It's February. Why don't we? Well, there were no trains coming to Kingston check the bus. The bus was insane. The bus was 19 and a half hours from Israel. I don't know where they go. <laughs> it was insane. It was like, I wouldn't go to anywhere for now. It's like Serbia's 13 hours. Anyway, that's not happening. And um, so we got snow tires. And I didn't expect, today's Thursday. I guess it was Tuesday. And it's like, so we're driving. I'm like, How'd that happen? Well, anything could happen could happen today. And it's a whole different world now because Mara likes to hike in the winter. So now she can go with our dogs and do this. And 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 I didn't plan it. It just happened. And part of that organic thing, I think, is is uh, now I'm just talking with snow tires. <laughs> oh. You probably got them cheap. I, I, I know. <laughs> but damn, we felt we felt good. Well, it was great. We woke up, and then we, of course we got them. It was really nice in Toronto. And then we woke up last this morning. It was like, yeah, snow. Get our money's worth. And it's gonna be great. It's fantastic. Um, and so Seneca, so that's a big book, book for you, that book, Letters to a Stoic. Yeah. And he also says, right, don't spread things that, like, focus on the book you're on. Like, yeah. focus on the things you're And I think that's on. really hard in our culture when we have this, um, you know, um, we, I, we were lucky enough when we were in grad school in Texas that uh, Gary Snyder came to, to school and, and, and talked, read and talked. And, and the most interesting thing he said was, they were taught, this is a long time ago, this is like 97, so just the beginning of, of of not even social media, but the internet, etc. And they asked him about all this stuff. And he said, well, we have the age of enlightenment. We know that. We know we have the age of reason. Well, we're the information age. Lots of good things about that. Enlightenment and information, though. There's two different things, right? And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. Um, I, you can find out about anything now, you know, to the point where I was with my idiot friends at the cottage, and we want to get a pizza. We want your pizza. I don't know. Let's Google it. I said, you're not Googling pizza toppings. There's a line. Put, put your machinery over there kind of deal. And I, I really feel that, that there is this. It's, it's even harder now, I think, to be, what do you want to call it? My, whatever. Whatever it is, right? It's a, it's a lot harder now because it's easier. One of the advantages is of my, uh, my studio is out back. It's a renovated garage. I don't get internet out there. 
Because I know when I write in the house, I write for f 10 minutes, and then I, I go look on eBay, and I go look at the... And I don't, you know, I don't write emails or anything, but I'm... And it, I, I used to have a book on my desk, and I would, it would usually be a book of poetry. I wouldn't read it. I'd just read... I mean, I wouldn't read a poem. i just, you know... And I, I kind of have to be forced to do it, because it's just so... There's something about... Exactly. Your, your mind gets... What, what did you talk about? There was an article, like, your brain actually registers... Like your endorphin rush when you get likes and you're interacting mm -hmm. and there's this replicate dopamine. Yeah, I mean this is serious, seriously. And I don't think I think they kind of know about this. <laughs> you know, our masters in the commercial world. But I think it's really, really hard. I mean, I'm not a luddite because I, you know, I like electricity and things. <laughs> but um, not having um, internet access where you're writing is. That's yeah, cool. but it wasn't a choice. I, I wish I I don't have that choice. It's just because there's a you have good Wi-Fi. No, because the Wi-Fi is in the apartment, and that's right. where I write, so I right. can't really get away from it. And the temptation, whenever it gets stuck, to just read the news or right. look at sports highlights can, or whatever. And you can rationalize it. You can it's turn so it off. easy to do it. You can rationalize it as research, too. Of course, right? I can turn it off, and I do sometimes, but... See, it used but to be... Now I need a deadline to make me yeah. do that, right? <laughs> it so used to be, the cliche used to be was that, you know, be, you know, the writer, who, if she spends too much time at the library and not a time at their desk... Well, now you don't have to go to the library. You can just go to Wikipedia yeah. or whatever, right? Especially if right. you're writing a book that's sort of set. Uh, the last novel was set in 1979, so sure, I could I could spend the afternoon looking up, you know, Dr. Pepper and his origins. But really, what's really important is why this kid is here. I can find this stuff out later, um, and that's one of the things that I think it's, it's really. And that's why I think I need to be surrounded by good books, good people. I have pictures up on my filing cabinet, sort of a. Hall of not of fame, but a hall of inspiration and people. And I don't want to look. I don't want Emily Dickinson looking at me like what? <laughs> you know, really, really, you're, you know. And I, I think we need that. And because I, I think that so what we see. We have teachers. We have coaches. We have you know religious symbology. I just think we need help. And I think one of the things that we have, it's ironic. There's never been more access to this stuff. You could. You could find anything online. You could find Montaigne online. You find Seneca online. You can never. But it means sitting down with a cup of tea, and hopefully decaffeinated tea, <laughs> and sitting there and reading for 20 minutes, and then going outside and looking at your rose bushes, and if they need a little dust, and throwing the ball for the dog, and coming back in. I know it because I'm very high strung, and I feel different when I get into bad habits, and so it's really hard. But it's really important to get into good habits. And, and um, I, I honestly think that it's a very courageous act to be in opposition to your age, although there's wonderful things about our age. Right? Do you have any idea why um, we avoid, well, you, you don't avoid the hard work because you don't have internet access. But you know that once you start getting into the book you're working yeah. on, whether it's story, poem, doesn't matter what it is, once you get into it, you go into a kind of trance, yeah. and it's quite delightful, and you're actually creating something, and it's, it's valuable on every level. That's a good feeling, and yet yeah. I, and most people like me, yeah. will do almost anything they yeah. can yeah, to avoid going into that. It's so ironic, isn't That it? doesn't make any sense. That so makes no sense, I can't right. understand it. So I feel like I'm a self-aware person, but why is it? that I look for ways right. to procrastinate, like sports highlights, yeah, yeah. Oh, which, yeah. which I'm not even that interested in. I really <laughs> yeah. couldn't give a shit. That's fascinating. And yet, I'll go to that before going into the work, you know it's knowing it's going to be 5, 10, 15 minutes of struggle, and then I'll be into it, and then it'll flow. Right. And I'll be happy, and I'll be glad I did it. And yet, getting over that 15 or minutes, or maybe yeah. half an hour, 
uh, before you really get into the flow. That is hard, and I don't really, I honestly don't understand. And that's, that's why I'm sure you'll end up writing a poem about it, or I don't know if you'll devote a book to it, or it'll be a passage in a novel or something, but it's interesting. I mean, why do majority of Americans vote against their self-interest? I mean, it's fascinating, right? Self-destruction. Um, right. Right? Well, yeah, maybe there's, I, mean, I hadn't it's, thought of I'm not, It's a different thing entirely, but it's the same thing. You're doing something that you should, yours is different because you know better, but I feel the same way, you know, in terms of interactions with other people. I, I happen to believe that it, it's, it's habit, um, and the, I guess the positive is that it's just as it's easy to fall into bad habits, it's possible. Like uh, people, uh, I go to the gym every day, I was saying, elliptical, tr elliptical trainer, uh, two miles a day, oh, you're so disciplined. If I don't do it, I don't feel good. Mm -hmm. It's very selfish, really. Um, oh, you write, you know, you're prolific. Or I say, well, I just don't, I don't like much else. I'm trying to actually like more things. I'm trying to be more in the world. I think my work will be better. I think I'll be better. But um, it's fascinating because it's that, and that's what I think we need real art for, not propaganda, not this, the didacticism, the pedantry that is, that is our, uh, particularly in, I don't know, I find it particularly in Canadian with letters, what you want to call it, is that, you know, they're, 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 you know we're all about this sort of non-binary when it comes to everything, sexuality, whatever, which is great, but when it comes to ideas, we're very binary. There's good, there's bad, there's right, there's left, there's black, there's white, there's you against us. And I, it's antithesis. You know, when Yeats says that we make, out of arguments with others, we make rhetoric, out of arguments with ourselves, we make art. Well, you couldn't get a lot of play for that today. It's you wrestling with that very question. Why am I doing something? And out of that, someone will read and go, the Coleridge, like what off was thought but never so well expressed. I felt that, and they're going to feel a little less alone. They're going to feel a little more capable of actually doing that because you've, what is this really stupid contradiction or whatever? And that's what I look for in art. You know, easy answers or shallow answers, um, you know, but that, that delightful, delightful tension that you find in all of the great poets and, and music, whatever. Um, makes you feel more alive, and that's really what I want as a reader, as a listener, and I hope, I'm pulling all this together now, hopefully uh, readers get from my books, as a sense of, yeah, I don't agree with pages 16 through 17 or whatever, but I feel like uh, I'm going to take these questions when I go meet a friend for coffee, or I go for a hike, or I'm walking my dog or something, because I feel like we're having this conversation, you know, occasionally, you, you know this better than me, because you publish more books, and Occasionally, you'll just get an email from someone, uh, and it'll say, um, you know, uh, they've read a couple of your books, and they live in Flin Flon or something. You're never going to meet them. They probably got them from the library. They didn't make a penny off it, uh, <laughs> right? I love the libraries, though. I do. But, but it's not that. It's like, oh, you know, this person, it's not like, oh, your book changed my life. It's just, hey, I really, I, 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 I like, you know, I didn't know there were any funny Canadian, I, oh, you read about music, or you read about death or something. And it just feels um, like this is why we're doing it, right? Like we're having this conversation. Um, and I don't feel cynical about that. I feel that's still happening and still possible, and I feel really grateful, you know? I especially says, and I guess we'll wrap this up, I said the 12, the 12 books. I, I, I just feel like every time that we go to the, the book launch is usually, the first one's in Toronto, and I always say to my wife, we fool them again, you know? We put something in the world that the world really doesn't want, <laughs> you know? And it looks nice, and you know, we got seven cents, and that was great, and, and it feels like a real victory, and it means nothing, you know? You, you get all, you know, the names that were big when we were young, when I met Steve, I was 31, you know, 
when the Globe and Mail had a book section, there would be so-and-so on the cover or whatever. That whole world's gone. Those people, yeah. most, you know, and it doesn't make me sad. It just makes me realize, well, it's this conversation that's continuing. And sometimes it continues after your death, you know. I mean, I don't believe that Stevie Smith smiled in heaven when I picked up her book, but I smiled because I had a better day because of it. And that, to me, is as close to mystical as I can get, that in music and good weed. Um, perhaps we've spoken too much. You know? <laughs> anyway, I've enjoyed this, and thank you for coming out on a February night. Um, Thanks, Ray. Th this was the, public, the salespeople's idea, and, and I, I'm really, I know who the hardy readers are, because they all came out in January and February to talk about death. You know, I mean, come on. It's not the book about rhododendrons in July. It's death in February. What's the title of my next book, by the way? Anyway, I'll stop talking. Thank you. That's the Can important thing. The books are free. The buttons are $20. The books are free. Well, the buttons are 20 bucks. And you just heard Ray Robertson uh, launching and discussing a conversation around his new book, How to Die, a book about being alive, again, published by Biblioasis. Tell you what, let's do this uh, very quickly, and I'll be right back. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the campus and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. by myself, Selena Chirelli, here on CFRC 101.9, Monday nights at 7. I'm David Suzuki. Cut your heat and energy use by 10% and you'll be making a real difference combating global warming. The future is in your hands. Shrink your footprint, grow your wallet, cool the planet. Find out how at davidsuzuki.org. And you are listening, you have been listening to 
Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And I do want to thank you for tuning in today. I'm getting very close to the end of the hour here, so thank you for, for that. And I hope you have a great week ahead, a great weekend ahead of that. I think the weather's actually supposed to be a little bit nicer. We'll see if that happens, but uh, that's kind of what they're calling for. Uh, what I do have, I do have a couple of other recorded uh, things to air uh, right before I log off. But so a couple of those segments, uh, just a bit over a minute, though. Uh, so I do have, that does leave me a couple of minutes. I had actually forgotten a weekly event uh, that uh, comes up. It's weekly, so it's every week except for the month of August. But it's the Limestone Writers Writing Group. They meet every Wednesday evening uh, to critique uh, and support one another's writing. Uh, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, memoir are all represented. Uh, they meet at 7 p.m., uh, September through April in room 39, 230, I'm sorry, 239 of Stauffer Library. Uh, and then they meet at different hours uh, in these late spring and early summer, but that's kind of irrelevant right now. So just remember that, 7 o'clock, room 239 at Stauffer Library. I might uh, see what I've got here. Yeah, got just a, a couple of minutes here. Let's see what I can find. I can tell you there are four things going on uh, next, a week from Saturday, and that uh, that is, you know what, that's just too far out, and I don't want to favor everything because there's no way I'm going to get it all talked about. So uh, just be aware when you listen next week, have your pencil handy because there are going to be a lot of things happening uh, that next day. And uh, I think I might have had one other submission. Now, let me just double check and see where we're at with that. Oh, yeah, it's just it's more like an open submission, but it's called Coven Editions. Uh, mini chapbook manuscript is what they're uh, looking for. Uh, it says they're currently accepting submissions of mini chapbook uh, manuscripts for poetry, short fiction, flash fiction, and literary genres. Uh, the pain manuscripts should be a maximum of 15 pages. And it says uh, they will attempt to include visual art and design elements, but sometimes that is impossible. They do want uh, them sent electronically. That is the only way they will accept submissions, and preferably they say in a PDF format. And uh, they uh, just want you to email your work along with a brief bio of under 100, 100 words. And... Uh, We'll consider previous published work, but they do prefer unpublished. Uh, and uh, they're pretty strict. It says, if your submissions do not follow our guidelines, we will not consider your work. So there you go. They do say, though, they are inclusive and intersectional publisher. Uh, accept and encourage work from marginalized voices and welcome writers um, uh, to self-identify if they choose. www.coven, that's uh, C-O-V-E-N, Coven Editions. Dot com. And with that, I'm going to head out of here. Please stay tuned for, right after these messages, uh, two hours of East Coast music uh, with Rob Carnell.
saltwater music. Again, thanks for tuning in. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.